So the labor of love myth unites disparate sectors of the workplace, from home healthcare workers to video game workers. All of them were telling me that, you know, their boss says, well, this is just like a family. It is a form of common sense of the neoliberal era that we should like our jobs, even love our jobs, that we do work not because we have to get paid, but because we enjoy it. This is the Dependance Podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Geert Maarsen. And today we will discuss work, right? Exactly. The last decades, our attitude towards work has drastically changed. We are always working, always on, always available. And we have made the job one of the most important things in our lives. Yeah, and we're getting sick of it, literally. Yeah. This year, four and a half million Americans quit their jobs in what is already called the Great Resignation or the Big Quit. And in the Netherlands, one out of six people, one million people, are suffering burnout-related complaints. In a live event in the Arminius Church in Rotterdam, we discussed our problematic relationship with work. And one of our main guests there was the amazing journalist and writer Sarah Jeffy. She writes for the New York Times and The Guardian. And most importantly, she is the author of the book Why Work Won't Love You Back. How devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited, exhausted and alone. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, It is actually really exciting to get to do book talks in person because all I did for a year and a half, it felt like, was Zoom. How many other people are really, really, really sick of talking to a video on your computer? Yay, yeah. So it's really nice to like see faces and I can tell if I'm boring you when you're actually here in front of me, which is great um, because it's really hard to do that on Zoom. So, you know. Feel free to roll your eyes and theatrically look bored if I'm boring you, and I will try to move on. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about my book, but I wanted to start off with a a few words about sort of what the COVID-19 pandemic has done to work and our experience of it. Because it has mostly split us, in the US it split us into three groups, in parts of Europe where you had nice things like furlough programs where some people got paid not to work, um, it was four groups. But essentially you had people who were working from home, doing the same job they had been, more or less, but now at home. People who just lost their jobs entirely, um, and people who were still going to work, and it just had suddenly gotten a lot more dangerous to do the job they had been doing. And again, if you were lucky, maybe you got furloughed and you got paid to stay home without having to work. Um, We didn't do that where I come from. So everything basically got worse, Um, unless you were Jeff Bezos and your profits went through the roof. Everybody's relationship to work got massively screwed up over the last couple of years. Um, It highlighted the tension between home and work while also blurring the boundaries between home and work. Um, But it really underscored that the economy is made up of people. And if you have a global pandemic that prevents a lot of people from going to work, it's going to screw up things, the way things are made, shipped, moved. Um, I went to the Maritime Museum today, so I'm thinking a lot about shipping again today. Um, And that has told us a lot about how work actually sucks, but it has also shown us that we can change the way we work 
actually very, very quickly, which is something I think we'll return to a lot tonight. Um, so what is happening now, now that we're sort of kind of being told we're back to normal, um, is that we're seeing people respond to all these changes in three ways, or at least people refusing work that has gotten worse in three ways. One of those is quitting. People have called it the big quit or the great resignation. One of those is, of course, joining or forming a new union, and one is just straight up going on strike. Um, again, I'm assuming we'll return to all of these three things later. Um, so my book, Work Won't Love You Back, um, which is a title I was saying that came to me in the shower after we were trying to come up with a way to call it something to do with labor of love that didn't have those words in it because there have been about 20 books with that title. Um, it is a form of common sense of the neoliberal era that we should like our jobs, even love our jobs, that we do work not because we have to get paid, but because we enjoy it and because humans would be really, really bored if we didn't work for 40-ish hours a week. So the idea that we should love our jobs is actually sort of a motivating tool that's told to us by other people from the time we're like little kids, right? Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, and then my parents would tell me, you can't do that, that's not a real job. Um, I said, I want to write fiction. Nope. I want to be an animal trainer. Nope. Yeah, so, jokes on them. I write nonfiction and get paid for it. Um, so, but this, this story of loving our jobs, it didn't just magically come to be, right? It was told to us from somewhere, and it came about through changes in the actual economy. Um, as I was walking around the cranes that are down on the waterfront outside of the Maritime Museum, thinking about the decline of industrial labor in places like the Netherlands, the US, the UK, um, to understand the way that we switched from an economy that basically was built on making things, doing things, and in, well, the case of some of these economies, stealing them from people and selling them somewhere else, um, we have now gone into an economy that is mostly reliant on services, caring, healthcare work, um, and the creative sector. We hear a lot about the creative sector. It's maybe not as big as we would like it to be. Um, and this means that our relationship to work is, is pretty different than it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. If you were working in the Ford factory making cars, nobody expected you to like it. Nobody expected you to be there because you really, really wanted to stand behind the same machine all day doing the same thing 20 times an hour, 50 times an hour, 100 times an hour. You were there because you needed to make a living and because you would probably make a halfway decent living if you worked in the car factory, which you would not be guaranteed somewhere else. So the world outside the workplace has also changed in recent years, right? Housing is more expensive and harder to come by. Education has gotten more expensive. Um, policing and borders more intense. Um, most people are doing more care work because the welfare state is being stripped back or if, again, you're an American, we never really had one to begin with. And now, of course, COVID. So the labor of love myth unites disparate sectors of the workplace, from home healthcare workers to video game workers. All of them were telling me that, you know, their boss says, well, this is just like a family. Show of hands, how many people have been told that your workplace is like a family? Maybe it's not as big in the Netherlands as the US and the UK, but um, yeah, it still happens. Um, so the changes in the economy that brought us all of this fun work that we're supposed to love, right? We're not supposed to notice them. We're not supposed to really 
be aware that this story that we're being told about work is not the same story as it was 50, 60 years ago. Um, we have a fast-growing service sector where you have to smile all day at work. Sorry for hitting the microphone. Um, which is built off of gendered skills that are assumed to be natural for women. And then we have a fast-growing tech sector where long, 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 long hours and dedication to what you do are the norm um, that's based off a narrative about creative work, like the person over here who was talking about being an artist and uh, being underpaid for it. So the labors of love rely on these kinds of human characteristics that you were not supposed to bring to work if you were working in the Ford factory. You were not supposed to have any feelings on the assembly line. Now you're supposed to have a lot of feelings and your boss is making money off of all of them. So I split the book into two halves and they are stories that come out of, the first half is based in that caring narrative about women's work, about service work, that starts with unpaid domestic work that the pandemic really reminded us that women still do the majority of in the home, paid domestic labor, retail and restaurant work, teaching, and the nonprofit sector. Um, so I was asked to talk about a few specific examples. So um, in talking about domestic work and talking about the labor of making the house a livable place so that we can be functional enough to get up and go to maybe our paid jobs the next morning, of raising the next generation of good little workers who are gonna love their jobs, um, all of those things, right? They're actually necessary to the reproduction of the capitalist system as a whole. And they're mostly done for free, right? We mostly don't think that somebody is going to pay us to make our bed in the morning and clean the shower so it doesn't have mold growing in it. Maybe you, pay, you do pay somebody to do that. Maybe there are people who come into your house um, and do that work for you and you pay them whatever it is worth it to you and to them to do that work. Um, but that work is still, as I said, sort of assumed to be natural for certain people. In terms of paid domestic work, a lot of that tends to be done by immigrant workers, it tends to be done by workers of color, um, where the narrative about service work being natural for women is doubled up, and it also is natural for people of color to be doing that kind of service labor. And that is... I'm bad with numbers, so I don't know how the number off the top of my head that people, that economists have estimated the value, maybe Guy can tell us this number, um, the value of that unpaid work, if it was actually had to be paid at even minimum wage in most countries, is in the trillions. Um, then I was asked to talk about internships. How many people have done an unpaid internship? Again, not as many as I thought. Okay, well, that's good. Um, maybe they're dying. They're probably not dying. Internships kind of bridge the gap between the creative economy and the service economy. They bring the dynamics of the service sector into that creative work, that supposedly high-skilled work. Because while you're there, you have to be grateful and you have to do everything that your boss asks and maybe you spent more time fetching coffee. I had an internship where I had to clean the windowsills because having the windows open in this New York City office meant the windowsill got very dirty and my boss's books were dirty and we couldn't have that. So I had to wipe the dirt off of her books. This is a journalism internship. I was learning a lot about journalism. Um, so internships rely on what um, some scholars have called hope labor, what Guy has called work for labor, which is this work that you're doing in order to earn the opportunity to have a job later. Um, it's kind of ridiculous if you think about it, right? The point of doing a job is supposed to be getting paid 
but yet we are doing free work in the hopes that we will maybe be granted the right to have a job at some point. Um, and the second half of the book talks about creative work and the idea that creative work is its own reward, that it's not really work at all, but it's something fun and we should be really grateful to get paid to do it at all. Um, the arts, media, the academy, also computer programming and technology, and then I finish up the book talking about sports because I wanted to talk about sports and because obviously it is also true that people assume that that is not really work, it is play. Um, and so when we think about the tech sector, we think about stories about sort of socially maladjusted male geniuses like Mark Zuckerberg, even though the actual first computer programmers were women. And the narrative of this being work that is particularly suited to sort of antisocial men of a certain type was created in order to reclaim this work that it had become clear was some suddenly going to be high paid work for men. Um, the long hours in video games, which is what I profiled for the book, it is especially ridiculous, the hours. They call it crunch. It's got a cute little nickname, but it's not actually cute at all to be working 100 hours a week and sleeping at the office. Um, and I was actually a bit surprised when I was doing the reporting how much the, this is a family, you join the family, was common in tech as well as in the jobs that are more associated with women. Um, and then there's, a, you know, we hear the stories about like the Google workplace and the Facebook workplace as places that are full of toys and games and they're fun to be in. Um, and aside from being infantilizing, it's also just designed to get you to feel more comfortable in the workplace and stay there longer all day long. So all of this sucks, right? Work keeps getting worse for everybody. We're getting conned into doing more of it for less money and um, everything is crap, right? So what do we do about it? Um, so I tell the story in this book through 10 different workers in these 10 different sectors, all of whom have done some organizing to change their working conditions, all of whom had an experience in some way of realizing that their job was actually not going to love them back, that they were being exploited, and that the way to do something about that wasn't just to quit and find maybe a better job, a slightly nicer job, maybe a boss that did like them better, but was actually to get together with their coworkers and do something about it. Um, so my, the domestic worker that I profiled, Adela, who's a paid domestic worker, she's a nanny in New York City, is part of the Domestic Workers Alliance, and the interns that I spoke with, I actually went to Montreal where there had been a strike of interns across the universities in 2020 and 2021. Um, about 30,000 interns went on strike against unpaid internships. They won at least some sort of subsidy for internships, though not a full wage. And then in the tech sector, I was in England and I was talking to the folks who had started one of the first trade unions for video games workers and have been fighting and winning and losing and being fired for their organizing across the industry. Um, so I know we're going to talk about all of this stuff in more detail in a few, um, but I wanted to also say that I think the pandemic, and this is bringing me back to where I started, has given us this moment of realizing that work can change, right? That it doesn't actually have to look the way it looked for most of our working lives, because all of a sudden we learned that it is possible to work from home. It is possible for this business to not run with the same amount of workers. It is possible maybe to have um, some safety precautions in the workplace. 
And that's also given us the space to talk about things. Um, I'm no guy is gonna talk about basic income, so I'll leave that one mostly alone, but also the shorter working week is becoming popular again. People are talking about a four-day work week. Um, there are things like the maybe permanent status of working from home or flexibility of working from home when you want to and working in the office when you want to. Um, in the States, they actually put in briefly, we're not going to get to keep it because nothing good lasts in America, um, a child tax credit that was actually refundable so people would get money for help raising their children because it turned out that um, being a parent during a pandemic with no help was really, really, really difficult. Um, it turns out it does, in fact, take a society to raise children. Sorry, Margaret Thatcher. Um, so we're, we're starting to think about things differently, um, even if the narrative now is just like, everything is over, go back to work, everything is normal, nothing has changed. It has changed, and I don't think we're going back in that box. Um, and I'll leave that there. Look at that timing. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen and myself Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio. And graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.